Let's turn together, if we would, to the book of Proverbs. Many of the things that we've sung tee up our passage for today in a powerful way. And I wish there were time to draw all the comparisons. But it's Proverbs chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 today. As most of you know, this is the the Sunday when we celebrate the sanctity of life. And it's a good thing that we do this every year because there are a few things about which we should feel more strongly than about the sanctity of human life. There's nothing more precious on the face of planet Earth than a living being who is in the very image of God from conception to birth, from cradle to grave. There are a few issues about which I feel more strongly and which can get me feeling more fleshly, to be honest, than uh, this one. And so today I'd like to talk about, the, not just about the one side, but about the two sides of this issue, about the right response uh, and the wrong response, about fighting for life, as you might title this message, without making a god of life. For decades I've you know, ascended to the pulpit on Sanctity of Life Sunday to rally the troops, you might say, and equally to offer hope to those who are struggling with guilt and shame who've been through an abortion. And whenever I do this, it opens up a wound and an inconsolable grief in me, and I'm sure in many of you, at what's been going on, like I'm sure it does with those of you who have uh, been through an abortion yourself. On one hand, it can stir such anger. I mean, 6.61 million babies, 61 million, have been aborted in the United States alone since Roe v. Wade was passed by the Supreme Court in 1973. The Holocaust of the Jews pales in comparison to this. And on top of that, we as a nation are in, you might say, uh, an illustrious group of nations. We're among the handful of countries that allow abortion on demand at any time through the nine months of pregnancy. And get this, the other three are Canada, China, and North Korea. There's been much progress over the last 30, 40 years, and I praise God for it, but there is still much to be done. We're down to only 862,000 abortions a year now in America, only. It can provoke a rage, one that's not always righteous, which we also need to talk about today. Sometimes through the years, our side looks like what, one, like what the Roman writer Seneca said about such things. He said, there are crimes so evil that if you expect a man to be as angry as the baseness of those crimes require, then he must not only be angry, but go insane. Ever felt that way? I felt that way over the last 47 years since that day of infamy when the United States Supreme Court legalized abortion. But I've learned through my own failures uh, since then that there's a fine line between righteous indignation and fleshly indignation. And I fear that more than we know, we in the pro-life camp have, have uh, on and off, maybe on a regular basis in one sector or another, gone insane over the years. Or at least our anger has gotten a lot more fleshly than we may realize. It's a tension here, a real tension that I'd like to begin with today. And two things happen when our response is not righteous. Well, a lot of things, but among them first, in effect, we make abortion into the unforgivable sin, which of course it isn't. And in so doing, we 
uh, in effect, condemn women who have had abortions and the men who have encouraged them, some of our own brothers and sisters in Christ, some of you are here today, we condemn them to a lifetime of unresolved guilt and inconsolable grief and silent shame. And we lose the lost when we make a God of life in an ungodly way, in an uncaring, condemning way. When the fate of their immortal souls is as important as the fate of the unborn. When in fact all of us are complicit in this. And worse, all of us are complicit in fact in a sin that's far worse than abortion. One that should be unforgivable but by God's grace it is not. And that is the crucifixion of God's only begotten son. It's level ground no matter what you've done at the cross. And we'll see today that a good part of how we can avoid this extreme is by seeking to, as our passage for today says, deliver them in the right way. Not just the babies, but the women. And not just before an abortion, but after an abortion. Through the truth that can heal. That's the title of this brochure that was published by a national organization called CareNet, one that has centers all over the nation to save the children and to help the women through their pregnancies and to help heal women who have had abortions and men, many of whom uh, compelled the women to do this. The men suffer too. Alpha Center in Fort Collins is part of CareNet that publishes, as is Life Choices in Loveland, and they're two of the groups that uh, have tables uh, out in the foyer today. It's titled Truth Heals, and it says this, there are many who think telling the truth induces guilt or is coercive, when in fact truth protects us and leads us into a healthier life. God says the truth will set you free. The opposite is also true. Lies and distortions entangle people. They lead people to make choices that bring harm to themselves and others. The community of faith must speak the truth because truth heals. And to that end, I want to say one more thing before we launch into our passage, something that will tee up the teaching of our passage in a perfect way. It's what Jenny McDermott said, who has a ministry in Canada, much like Alpha Center in Fort Collins, or Life Choices. She's the author of a book called Living in Color. Living in Color, which is about the new life that God can bring if you've had an abortion, like she did. She writes this. Abortion was and continues to be the dark secret of many women. Some of you are here today. One in six evangelicals, women have had abortion. And so they're not talking. Some women can go into meltdown immediately after an abortion procedure and others can keep these things buttoned down for a long time. And she says, I was one of those. But there was a deadness and a flatness and a grayness to my life that I could no longer deny. Deadness, flatness, grayness, hence the title of her book, Living in Color. I just pushed it down pretended it didn't happen, but I found that something had really changed in me. I didn't deep down trust myself anymore. I didn't trust other people anymore. I built a wall around myself. I didn't let anybody in. Other women turned to drinking and drugs and food. The Christian right, of which I am a part, hates what we have done, but believe me, they don't hate what we have done nearly as much as we hate what we have done. 
We must bring the dark secret to the light. And when I did, I saw that the purpose of my life is not to live in shame for the next decade or decades, but how can I take this experience and turn it into empathy for other people and glory for God? Every kind of brokenness creates cracks through which the light of the Spirit can enter with healing and new life by God's grace. Life that would never have been realized had it not been for that tragic incident. And for me, it was abortion that created the brokenness in the first place. She concludes with this. So eventually, the Spirit crept in the cracks of my own brokenness and brought me healing and salvation and also a deep love and concern for other broken people, knowing what it is to shed such a dark secret and to emerge into the light. It happened when I picked up the phone and called a caring pregnancy center. There are two of them represented out there. It'll probably be the hardest phone call you'll ever make. But you will not regret it. You'll get a new lease on life. You can get a whole new life like I did. It all began when she acknowledged what she had done and brought it to the light because truth heals when it's in love. Like we sang, though though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. Amen? And it's not just the women who need this. It's the men who are complicit in what they had done. And today, as you'll see in the foyer again, we have brought help. So what is the truth? What does the Bible have to say uh, about this? There's nothing like breaking the silence with the truth to motivate you to do the right thing, which is my goal today. Whether that means doing something about the abortion or deciding not to have one for your own sake as much as for the babies, as we'll see, um, uh, or coming to the light if you have had one. Through the unvarnished truth alone, which alone will heal. The truth that we'll be hearing, again, is from Proverbs 24. It's a section of Proverbs where Solomon trains us. Proverbs is a kindergarten of wisdom, and he trains us in one of the kindergarten principles of wisdom through this section. It's a four-chapter section to two words, to think consequentially. Think consequentially. Do not rob the poor, for instance, 22-22. For the Lord will plead their cause and take the life of those who rob them. That is, there will be consequences for exploiting the, the poor. God will intervene, so don't do it. Do not associate with a man given to anger, 22-24, lest you learn his ways. That is, think consequentially. Don't, uh, don't get too close to him, too intimate, if that's a huge issue uh, with him, lest you learn his ways though you need to speak the truth to him. Think consequentially. You'll become like him if you associate with him too much. Examine your heart. There are many other examples of this, but in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, Solomon gives another warning about the consequences of our behavior because God wanted to teach his people what they should do about something that happens in every generation somewhere in the world, and that is the problem of genocide or mass murder. This is not just a political issue. Well, it's political, but fundamentally it's moral, so the scripture nails it. And it's not just here. 
whether it be children sacrificed to idols, as Solomon was probably talking about in his day, or the Holocaust of the Jews back in the 40s, or the Cambodian you know, killing fields in the 60s, or Algeria, or the Congo, Rwanda, Syria, the ethnic Kurds, to name a few today. There's no end to them, and so the Scripture talks about it. Or supremely in our day, with the ultimate of these horrors, the slaughter of the unborn. The main point of these verses is the same as the section that they're in, and that is do something or suffer the consequences. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, Proverbs 24, 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts, and does he not know it who keeps your soul, and will he not render unto a man according to his works? Overall, he's saying, think consequentially. Whether you're a bystander to the abortion or whether you're considering having one, because he will render us according to our works. That is, we will reap what we sow. Choices have consequences. It's called lex talionis. Fundamental principle all through the Old Testament and the New. Beware, he's saying. But the other side of it is this. Don't despair. Because according to the rest of Scripture, he renders us according to our works, not just to condemn us forever, but to bring us to our knees, which is where we should always be anyway, to bring us to him, to bring greater good out of the evil which can happen After the pattern of the cross, where sin increases, grace can abound. Just like happened with Jenny McDermott, as we read about earlier. And so we see first God's command, Roman numeral one in your notes, the call of God to deliver them. It's simple. Uh, It's clear, it's straightforward. When it comes to genocide, all Christians have their marching orders. There is one course of action, one clear command, and that is to deliver them. (laughs) Not much exegesis needed here. What we really need is an exegesis of our excuses, which is what Solomon goes on to do. But just so we don't miss his point, just so we don't miss his passion, Solomon follows the command with a plea, and he says as we read, and those who are staggering to slaughter, oh, hold them back. Those mothers who are staggering to the clinics, most of whom are alone, many of whom are desperate, few of whom who really know what they're doing, most of whom who have been duped, and really know what they're doing or what will happen to them once it's supposedly over and done with. Oh, hold them back. Delay the women. Deliver the children. Do something about the Holocaust. That's our directive, pure and simple. And in a way, we really shouldn't have to say much more. And we're not going to say much more, at least not by way of graphic details. Because that's not what we find in the scripture. Rather, Solomon goes on in these verses not to describe what happened in his day when they sacrificed infants to idols. Rather, he focuses on how we keep it in the dark. It's an exegesis of our excuses, our deepest excuse. 
How so? Well, first again, we have God's call, verse 11, to deliver them. And then, verse 12, Roman numeral two in your notes, our cop-out. Our cop-out. If you say, see, we did not know this. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts, and does he not know it who keeps your soul? He's talking about the denials and the cover-ups and the rationalizations and the prevarications and all the rest that always happens when there's this kind of phenomenon, not to mention the willful ignorance. See, we did not know this. And he's saying here, don't say you don't know or that you forgot or that you're too busy to do anything or that it's just not your thing. Because I know, and I weigh your heart, and I keep your soul, and I know you know what's going on, and all of you do. And I will hold you responsible for what you know, and I want you to deliver them. As one of my seminary professors said, who launched the whole pro-life movement years ago, he said, on this issue, apathy is complicity. Apathy is complicity, especially in a democracy where we have both the right and the responsibility to do something. And if you're not already doing something, I'll tell you more about how you can at the end of the service. But first, the passage. See, we did not know this. It happens in many other ways, too, whenever there's genocide. The Scripture anticipates here precisely, for instance, what the pro-abortionists have been saying all along because they typically hide under a cloak sometimes of willful ignorance. You can see this from the highest to the lowest levels as we unpack the Scripture here and apply it to the current day. When Chief Justice Warren Burger, for instance, voted in favor of, of Jane Roe, he flatly denied that it would lead to abortion on demand. He wrote, I do not read the court's holding today as having the sweeping consequences attributed to them by the dissenting justices. The dissenting views discount the reality that the vast majority of physicians observe the standards of their profession and act only on the basis of carefully deliberated medical judgments uh, relating to life and health. Plainly, the court does not reject, the, the court today rejects any claim that the Constitution requires abortion on demand. See, we did not know this. Before the court's decision in, 19, uh, in 1973, there were 22,000 abortions each year. Now it's near a million each year. But Justice Berger would claim that he certainly didn't know about, just like the scripture predicted. But it's not just him. The terminology that the court used in rendering the decision was highly deceptive. A number of the justices weighed in here. It was shot through with a kind of willful ignorance. Here's how one analyst put it. In rendering its decision, the Supreme Court made one crucial assumption that made the rest quite predictable. The unborn child, whether embryo, fetus, or premature infant, is merely, in their words, a potential life. The only justification offered was that this view is less rigid than the belief that life begins at conception or at some other point prior to live birth. No attempt was made to provide biological, legal, or ethical evidence in support of this notion. 
potential life was, until then, unknown in legal terminology. See, we do not know. We can't define what's actually in the womb. Let's just just call it potential life and make a fundamental judgment based on that. And we don't even know what that means. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. You see the deception in the words of those who do abortions. The words child and baby are shunned. Instead, fetus and embryo are used as they talk to mothers. Today we're getting used to even more distant, what, these are circumlocutions, like abortus or product of conception. Women are told to think of their child as fetal tissue or like the yolk of an egg. New York's first biggest and most lucrative abortion facility is called the Center for Reproductive Health. And it's all hidden under that. See, we do not know it. Most tragically, you can see the deception in the experience of many mothers who go through it. Before the procedure is performed, women often expend a great deal of energy avoiding the issue or trying to. In the language of counseling, they seek to detach themselves from what is taking place. This is uh, well illustrated in, uh, in, in many different ways. A woman who was waiting to abort her Down syndrome child and wrote a book on it, recounts her experience. The baby kicks before it happened. The baby kicks another time. And I do my cross stretch more, more frantically. I start saying the word that they told me it was, fetus, over and over to myself. No baby, no baby, just Down syndrome fetus. There, there is a strategy of deceit and there has been from the very beginning at the highest levels down to pull the wool over the public's eyes, to pull the wool over women's eyes saying, see, we don't know. And in one way or another, that's what everyone is saying who isn't doing something about the Holocaust and who do know. But what does God say? Well, the more pressing question is what does God do? <laughs> to bring us to our senses. That's also in verse 12. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not know it who, who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to a man according to his work? That's what God does. These are rhetorical questions that Solomon is asking. And to every one of them, the answer is yes. Climaxing with the last one, will he not render to a man and a woman according to their work. Which brings us finally to Roman numeral three in your notes, the consequence. I will render to a man according to his works, and render he does in so many ways, to bring us to our senses, to bring us to him in our brokenness, which is where we all need to be. I will render to a man according to his work. How so? So many examples. In 1978, Dr. Warren Hearn and Billy Corrigan presented a paper on the emotional effects of the D&E late-term abortion procedure on medical personnel. They operated one of the busiest abortion practices in the Rocky Mountain states, the, you guessed it, the Boulder Abortion Clinic. 
They found of the 15 medical staff interviewed, four expressed feelings of resentment, irritation, or anger towards patients who had waited so long before seeking an abortion. Nine were quite preoccupied with the medical risks. In addition, two believed that performing a DNA abortion must eventually cause psychological damage to the doctors. Dr. Julius Butler, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at my alma mater, University of Minnesota Medical School. Uh, well, it wasn't the medical school where I went to, but it was my own. University of Medical College of Liberal, Liberal Arts, but he was from the medical school. He concurs that the emotional impact of the DNA procedure, not its safety, is the main point here. He said this about the doctors that he trained. We've had guys drinking too much taking drugs, even a suicide or two. There have been no studies I know of of the problem, but the unwritten statistics we see are alarming. It's happened to the millions upon millions of women who have been deceived into going against their better instincts. The old, one older mother put it this way in an anonymous article she wrote called An Apology to a Little Boy I Won't Ever See. She said, I am angry at Billie Jean King and Gloria Steinem and every woman who ever had an abortion and didn't tell me about this kind of pain. See, we do not know it. There is a conspiracy among the sisterhood not to tell each other about the guilt and self-hatred and terror. Having an abortion is not like having a wart removed like they told me or your nails done, or your hair cut, and anyone who tells you this is a liar or worse. To decide to have an abortion is to make a life and death decision, and most people don't, I know don't make those casually. Yes, it is convenient and legal and a subject for polite conversation, and yes, a part of me is dying too. Choirs of voices... Siren, choirs of voices are singing, see, we do not know this. And it's happening in many of our pulpits, more these days than ever, which by their silence are saying, see, we don't know this in the church. And most cruel of all is the silence, perhaps, of the pulpits these days, which sets the tone for the churches. And it's not just the babies who are the casualties of this silence. It's the women and the men who are suffering the consequences of their uninformed decisions which the scripture speaks to and which needs to be taught. Suffering the consequences without the, 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 the truth and the love of God that can come into their lives as they hear. When one in six evangelical women have had an abortion, the community of faith, just like this says, must speak the truth. The truth, like the truths we found here in Proverbs 24. Too many churches don't tell women what they'll suffer, how it will be rendered unto them according to their works. And how many of you have heard that if you have gone through with it, just like it says in this passage, Satan's strategy will be for you to keep it hidden. See, I do not know this. I can't know this. Even from yourself. 
And on top of the silence of the churches, too many right-wing Christians have made it the unforgivable sin, which only preserves the shame, the secret shame. But not here. Not here. You people for decades have supported this cause. And I praise God for that. And we have people here today who, who can help you live in color again. Because if you just bring it to the light, the truth can heal. It can bring life the likes of which would never have come, as Jenny McDermott said, without that tragic incident, such as his grace, such as his deliverance, such as his promise. After the pattern of the cross, from death to life. It can be all covered by the cross to bring greater life from death, greater good from horrible evil. We can all be agents of his deliverance, and many of you are. And if you're not, you can find out how today. Again, Alpha Center is out there in the foyer, along with Life Choices, two pregnancy centers that are on the front lines of what we've been talking about today. At their tables, you'll find out how to support them financially, how to donate clothing and other baby supplies, how to volunteer, how to pray, and how to find healing. Nightlight Christian, uh, nightlife, or light Christian adoptions is there too, which is, which is another way of delivering them. It's a powerful incentive not to have an abortion when a w- woman finds out that there's a loving family awaiting her child. Nightlight is a ministry, as m- pro- most of you probably know, that was uh, founded by our own Ron Stoddard. And uh, our own Kimberly Tyson is in charge of snow, their, their snow, Snowflakes embryo, embryo Adoption Program, which Nightlife pioneered. Uh, if life begins at conception, then every embryo rescued is a child saved. And every embryo implanted into an infertile woman's womb allows couples not just to adopt, but to actually give birth to a child. How powerful is that? And finally, there's a petition in the comments. We're collecting signatures to do what a number of other states have already passed, have already done, and that is to add a measure to the statewide ballot this year uh, on November 3rd, uh, a measure that would ban abortions after 22 weeks. That's a full month after the picture that you see up there on the right hand of the screens. There's a separate table for this petition, and I hope all of you sign it. Well, as the worship leaders come forward, all of these are ways that we can be agents of the Redeemer and the Deliverer who's in us to do it through us, to bring His power to bear to save the children and to deliver the women through the Savior who says, I don't care what you've done, I don't care where you've been, I will rescue you if you only let me in. And all of these that we've been talking about are ways to prove when the rubber meets the road that each of us are indeed on the Lord's side.